Speak Easier podcast by The Unmistakables. Welcome to the diversity conversation that everyone can learn from. We interview guests from the world of business, culture and arts about the work they're doing to make the world a more inclusive place. I'm Asad. And I'm Simone. And in this episode, we're asking, can we eat our way to inclusion? Our guest today is Marcel Saik founder and director of Keypoint, an inclusive catering company that is influenced by her Afghan background and her experiences growing up in London and focused on developing inclusive recipes with a mission of creating barbecue for the many. I'm excited about this one because our speakeasier started with Asma Khan, who talked about food in a man's world. And today we get to explore that again, explore it out of the context of Ramadan, thank goodness, I can actually eat and not salivate my way through the recording. The food looks brilliant and I'm really excited because maybe Marcel will offer us some at some point. So Simone, I hope you have eaten your lunch because it's going to be a good episode. I am so curious about British Afghan barbecue and also thinking it looks amazing. So fingers crossed that we do get some. In any case, I can't wait to know more from her. And so let's join. Let's do it. Making diversity everyone's business. So here we are on another episode of The Speakeasier. And this time around, we have Marcel. So we always start with a word association game. I mean, we always, I say always, if if we remember to do it. Um, And I remember this time. So you've got to tell us the first word that comes into your mind when you you hear this one. So five words. The first one is lockdown. Corona. Food. Barbecue. Women. Strong. Barbecue. Eat. And London. City. Amazing. Okay, Marcel, so you say it like it is. We've got you on today. Tell us a bit about who you are and what is it that you do? Well, my name is Marcel, as you mentioned. I have co-founded and director of QPoint Limited or QPoint London on the socials. And we're an inclusive catering company or inclusive barbecue focused catering company. Um, I guess what that means is that we try and create recipes like as much as we focus on smoked meats. Uh, uh, we love smoking meat so much because of 10 years our head chef has been doing it. But we want to do do something that is more inclusive to a wider range of people, par their cultural, religious or personal beliefs so that they can also partake in one, something like smoked barbecue, but two, foodie trends and things that look very inclusive that aren't we just didn't want to be part of that we wanted to be authentic and true to what barbecue actually is really okay so we're, so today we're asking you can can we eat our way to inclusion so you're saying that things uh, the food scene isn't very inclusive I've, n- I've never heard that before so why is that it, why isn't it inclusive So the food scene looks very inclusive. There's a lot of different diverse cultures at play fusions. You see so many amazing things. However, if you were to look a little bit deeper with a little, like with a fine comb, you see, I'm going to use an example to help make it quite clear. For example, um, a market that opened up in Hackney about six years ago, um, that is a diverse street food festival. And the street food comes from the streets of you know, around the world, <laughs> from the globe. So you very much expected to see, and you did see diverse different foods and fusions. And you saw it in one of the most socioeconomically poor boroughs um, at the time, then especially while I was living there and growing up there. And um, when that market opened, uh, 
think of the fact that you would have to just to get a family that comes from an area like that to enter, to just enter inside this, they'd have to pay five pound entry for a family of five, say it's 25 pounds. Then you go inside and that family is, say, either Muslim or they don't consume pork because it's quite an African Caribbean area, Hackney, predominantly. So then there only leaves you with, say, one option if you're Muslim, which would be the Indian option that was there, the Indian gourmet street food, which is just like every other time that you get thrown into that space. You want to purchase and try everything else. So it's not just in regards to diversity, it's inclusion with everything. Like it's quite hard for people from certain backgrounds to enjoy the foodie trends and to be involved with them as other people are because they're not in the spaces that were these people can we can either really afford or that we can enjoy because religiously we can't try that or oh we have vegan friends or if you're hindu vegan is just part of your diet it's not a trend something that you just do you know yeah that's it that's that's super interesting because i heard someone saying that about veganism and saying well you know it's still very new it's very new in terms of mainstream culture but it's been around for for centuries um and what what has shaped this belief of yours marissa like where did you get this idea to create an inclusive catering company well from from all of my experiences really if i'll be honest with you like growing up I came, I was born in Kabul, I was raised in India, and then came to the UK seeking asylum and had quite a racist experience in the beginning. But then due to that experience, my family, we moved to Hackney. And Hackney is, in my opinion, one of the best places that anyone can grow up. And one of the first experiences I had in Hackney was a food cultural day. And I was like, what? I didn't even understand English very well, but they were like, you have to get your mum to cook something and you have to bring it. And I was like, okay. And then I turn up to the to the hall in Kingsmead in our school, and there's all of this amazing food. There's jollof. There's this. There's there. We all have all of this different food, and we're all trying it. And then my friend's coming, and she's trying our food. And even though I didn't speak very like my English wasn't very good at all. You know, it wasn't like I, I didn't have a lot of friends, but I could go and take my man to, which is like little soft dumplings, to these um, new like I guess would be friends and pupils and that's the, that's a way to communicate and you realize that food just like air just like is a necessity so which better way to get people to start having conversations than through food to start sharing spaces than through food it's a, it's one of the least aggressive ways that we can insert ourselves and kind of change the systemic ways that things are going because if we don't then you very much have the same people in the same spaces, eating the same meals, having the same conversations and always judging. Like the restaurant space that you saw earlier that's abandoned here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereabouts, where are you right now? We, we saw you earlier, you were in an abandoned <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in White um, White City Place uh, in a W12 Studios, our residency for the next year. <laughs> so I'm just uh, sitting here doing some shipping things and other things as you've seen there's nobody here but my memories of this place from last year and the reason that we had our contract extended and why we decided to stay was we we chase places that serve alcohol we chase places where western clients and where people from you know like that, that will be there drinking and we make sure that as a halal inclusive company we have a lot of our own our clients coming in, making bookings, reservations, or we did. And one of my favorite memories is a group of women in full burqa and niqab and come to the restaurant, they enjoy their meals, great chat, then they get leaving. And then some of our um, media clients come up to us and they're like, oh my God, what? 
I didn't know Muslims could come inside where there was alcohol. And I was like, well, they're not going to burn. Of course they can. It's a preference. It's a choice. So, and then we could have that conversation. Right, right. So do, you, do you actively seek that out? It sounds yes. like you, you, you force it. I think it's very important too. I think that what happens in the food world is you have people that, that like the halal world is very halal, you know? Okay. Yeah. It's very Muslim heavy. It's very, and the problem with that is, is that again, we don't have, we, we don't have conversations shared. We don't have integration. In my family, we have a lot of stereotypes of British people or this or that or that. And if they shared more spaces and if people shared more spaces, you can have conversations like this. So for us, it's important to go to a place where alcohol will be consumed and then introduce mocktails so like we have done. Could you tell people, because as a consultancy, we have people asking us about halal certification and, and what is halal and what, a lot of what people know about it is what they will consume in mainstream media and perhaps some fake news or stereotypes about it. So could you explain what is halal? How, how does it influence your world and your life? And give, give, it kind of, give us a simple explanation of what halal is and what it means. Okay, well, halal, why recently, um, for our Instagram, and especially for Eid al-Hada, we wanted to define to people what halal meant to us, because there we get a lot of customers, um, a lot actually, asking us questions like, oh, excuse me, are you Sunni or Shia? Excuse me, is your meat stunned or this? Excuse me, is, um, and then going into denominations and denominations, and I have a template. And I say, hi, we are an inclusive company. We we use halal and we only use halal meat, sir. We do not serve pork, and we're but mainly we're an inclusive company. Like, and that has confused people, but more so, halal, like most other things, has gone into realms of oh, it's the barbaric, it's the this, it's the this. It's not. It is the meat should not be fed growth hormones. It should not be fed anything like this. It should be on a natural diet. It must be killed by hand and a prayer must be recited and a matri archery vein must be cut due to, you know, not wanting the animal to be in pain, but at the same time wanting it by hand as a way to return to the cycle of life and show respect to the animal. You know, like there, and, and that, that's it, that's my opinion. And that's what we're pushing out in Q point from everything we've learned and what we accept as halal, you know, um, and then the blood being drained fully and, that's and I've had I've had since this as well going up I've obviously had a lot of customers from either side because we are a very inclusive company so we're half quite um western British customers and then half quite like diverse and many 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 different walks of life and predominantly Muslim as well so, so you mix you mix the two together which I find fascinating as a, as a Muslim person what happens when you do that so you yeah. you talked at the beginning about um smoked barbecue and making smoked barbecue more inclusive now I guess there's a stereotype that people who like barbecue are male are mm -hmm. often white I think you've said that barbecue is a playground for white men only exactly. um just t tell us about some of the stories that you've encountered when it comes to barbecue and, and what it's like <laughs> being you. I, I want to hear some stories. <laughs> Difficult. <laughs> I'm five foot two, uh, young Afghan woman, and coming into a world like one of my one of the favorite stories, not favorite, but just want something that seems to occur, 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 is sitting at a table at a meeting with other men. And my business partner, head chef, 
uh, Joshua, and we're all sitting there and I'm asking the questions and I'm firing away and yet not one person is directing anything towards me or responding to me. No eye contact <laughs> is made. It's almost as if your voice is being carried to another person's body and it very much has felt like that, the barbecue experience. And it's it's been a journey of self-discovery and truly like putting oneself wholly out there to <laughs> I'm not a big white man that knows a lot about every single type of barbecue or this I know about what I know I come from an Afghan background I know recipes I know flavors I know smoked meats because it's not a predominantly white exclusive thing it's so one of the things I'm interested in is there is a lot of talk about the restaurant world being very male dominated is that something you've experienced myself Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and to such a degree that it's it's a it's a breath of fresh air just to have this conversation with you. Um like I've gone through so many different journeys of wondering whether I do belong here. Am I right for this? Are these men right? Am I, you know, like from and, and it's not just male dominated in regards that you see it on TV and in the media that you've got your Gordon Ramsay's, you've got your Jamie's, you've got your Marco Pierre's, you've got all these people and they are all predominantly as well white men, very much so in the media. But then it's more that it goes down to management and then you've got general management and then you go down and line management and you realise that probably the reason that it's so difficult for women to make it higher up in the industry more so than the service or the assistant manager or this is because you have so many men as firewalls <laughs> to each thing. And I've had to change my personality. I have a balance between a masculine and feminine personality. But I have to be honest, in the last few years, I've been told by my partner, by my friends, by my family, that my personality has become very masculine, probably as an effort to deal with the amount of <laughs> that, that I'm dealing with. And you see them in smaller ways as it goes and trickles down, for example, in the venue that I'm at here. I'm not sure this isn't a shade at anyone, but it's just an example of sexism in the industry is the male toilets even now are full with toilet paper and every, you know, the hand sanitizer and all of this. And the female toilets, as much as we're closed down and no one's using them, as usual, they have no toilet. And this was the recurring thing that I'd find in most restaurants. And it's because there are female servers, but the management predominantly focuses on the male, even as far down and as trickled down <laughs> as to toilet paper, uh, it can be a bit of a battle. Okay, you know, it's, it's amazing all the different ways it shows up because you've talked about it from the top to the bottom, that kind of male influence and, and the lack of female focus really having such an impact. What's the one thing that you think you can do to help change that in your own small way? There's so many different things that we can do as companies. Personally, myself, uh, I think I focus on diversity, but focusing on women and diversity and helping assist them in ways of giving them jobs. Like at the moment, I have somebody that's helping and working with me and pushing them from a position of where they were a waitress or this and going, no, actually, I know that you don't realize this, but you have the potential to be in sales and to be in this. It just needs to be taught to you. It just needs to be, you need to know the secrets that everybody else does. And by working with, I work quite a lot. I'm doing an event with Shaz, actually, um, with Nike for Muslim Circuit. 
women, again, just helping young Muslim women appreciate and understand that they have a space, they have a voice, and that maybe this space, like for me, it was quite scary. I had to insert myself into a space that, again, was never intended for me, but what many spaces are intended for us, but trying to create spaces where it is intended for them where there is somebody like me or people like me going to these groups, trying to inspire young women, trying to bring them on board saying, what's your incentive? What do you want? Uh, And mentoring them in a way. And it's been quite lovely to realize that just seeing somebody that they think is a boss and just being able to go up and do something as simple as network and say, hi, this is my name is so intimidating. But for some people, it's just second nature. And that's what separates us. So it's like I want to help corporatify people (laughs) from certain backgrounds that are around me, particularly uh, um, in younger communities. And I guess that's kind of what we're doing a little bit with our business. Yeah, it sounds like you you're on a real mission. (laughs) Was it that you sat down one day and said, this is going to be my mission? Not really. I think it's more so that don't get me wrong, I love food and I love barbecue, but the CSR, the corporate social strategy side of Qpoint is what I'm passionate about. And it's one thing, like even when we had no money four years ago when we started, we decided to do this thing where we do a workshop at Pensable Prison once a week, like once every two weeks, um, and just teach the prisoners how to cook. And it's like that would keep me and Josh sane for the next amount of being in the business while being with this male dominated world, being for having battles almost every day because people would look at us and the first thing they do is go, wow, like he looks quite young. I look quite young. And, and, and then they see these two little brown kids and they're like, you're not seriously going to walk in here and try and run this site. Are you? And it's like, you always have to prove yourself constantly, constantly, constantly that giving back into the community and being part of the community and being back into where you came from, like working with the prisoners gave me so much life. And then to see Danny and some of the boys come out and go, actually, I've got a job as a chef. And before having a conversation going, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. And even that still fuels me today because I'm like, just work hard enough, make enough so that you can do something more. You're not battling racism. You're not going and changing everything. But what you are doing is showing that there is another way and as long as you do your little part in that way, I know that the corporate world and these, this world that I live in can't take me, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it, does, it, makes a, it makes a lot of sense. And I guess I, I'm holding a few things. Either we can talk about belonging and how important it is to belong, which we hear a lot from corporate companies. However, if, if I can and if we're allowed, I'd love to hear more about, I guess, your heritage. You said you're from Kabul, you came here as an asylum seeker. There are so many stereotypes that people have around that uh, uh, and migration and asylum seeker uh, seeking. And I'd love to explore that a bit with you to say, like, has that shaped you? And Because and it, it sounds like it's given you a real kind of fighting attitude. Absolutely. Holy. Like, I, I feel like it shaped me in such a way. And it constantly, I, I feel it. everyone has core parts of their identities. But when you lose your identity, you, you what what becomes your core part of your, your displacement? Because I can't, like, when we went back home to Afghanistan and we try and go back as often as we can, but it's difficult. Um, but when we went back as, as an adult, I, I felt so... I was made fun of. I was the little London girl. I was this, I was that. And here in England, first having come here as a refugee with the charity shop closed, 
with the fresh accent, with never being able to afford the ice creams at school or the tuck shops or, you know, the thing, things like that. And always just feeling a little bit not enough, you know, like oh, 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 always on eggshells. I was born in Kabul in the war, in the civil war, well, many of the wars, in one of the civil wars in the 1990s civil war. Uh, but my family was is quite a proud family and they didn't want to go too far away. They didn't want to leave home. So um, my father was like, no, let's go to India. We can go we'll work there and then we'll come back home um, because a group of Talib, uh, Taliban, sorry, uh, came and they took our house. So there was no place for us to go. It was like, well, thanks. <laughs> so we moved um, from there to India and that's where my best memories, I love India. I thought it was the most amazing place. <laughs> like, um, and grew up there. And then en route to England is where everything almost went wrong. We had quite a horrible experience where somebody had placed some um, some drugs in my sister's luggage and she was a child. Uh, we don't know who this person was, but clearly they were part of some sort of process. And either way, whatever happened is my father and my sisters got split up from myself and my mother and my brother. And we came here separately. And my poor mother just had to figure out this whole asylum process on her own with little to no English, without my father, without the breadwinner, without anything. And that's when we came to this, what I thought was a palace, a gold palace made just for us. It turns out it was an asylum house in Brent Cross. <laughs> like, but I very much thought that England had made us a palace. And then I met Santa Claus and he gave us presents. And I was like, what is going on? This country is great. <laughs> like, and then eventually I grew up and learned English. Uh, my mum used to put on Radio 1 and, and radio. That's all we really had. And then I met my father and my sisters and they had come through um, another process. So I just didn't recognize them. I didn't know who they were. So it was quite a, a large portion of my life was continuing to just kind of live that and, and not realizing that I was even Afghan for a while. <laughs> like uh, There were many strange my first experience of racism was one in Barnet when my sisters had just arrived and I met a girl called Deborah and she was from Ghana and she'd just come as well and I was like oh my god come and meet my friends and I take her over to my friends and my friends look at her and they go Marcel we're not allowed to play with her and I was like what they're like my our dad said we're not allowed to play with people like them Deborah is a black girl and I was like I don't I don't understand. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm not from here too. My mom says we're from this place called Afghanistan. And the girls, these two young girls, we're all what, below the age of 10. They say to me, oh, no, 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 Marcel, that's fine. It's fine. Cause no, you're, no, you, you're, you're white, Marcel. And I was like, no, I'm not. I come from this other country. Um, but that's when I kind of almost like recognized my privilege. It's all right. Everything kind of happened at once. And I realized like I was like my sisters who didn't speak English, who didn't you know, like that's who I was. But in this country, I was white passing and I was passing for a whole different experience than so many people. And it was really after that experience that, that we had to move from there. Um, and yeah, that's when everything else almost like Hackney growing up has been so much part of me that I don't want anyone else to really feel left out in that sort of way, whether they're first generation, second generation, like you know like black asian middle eastern you know your identity is what you make it is what your experiences make it not what somebody else makes and i think that as corporate companies if we owe anything to the world if you're even trying to make any sort of profit you you need to be having something more you must do or you, there is no point in like why are you here 
I find that so interesting. And actually, I've been dying to ask you this since you came on, because there was a, a line I read somewhere when we were digging into some stuff around you to kind of figure out our questions. And you talked about how you started off making um, American barbecue style food. But as you saw Islamophobia increasing, you decided to switch to halal and promote a different narrative of Islam. And you've touched on the fact that though that might cut profit mar margins, it breeds innovation. And, and for me, that struck of purpose over profit. And, and I wanted to ask you, how do you feel about that now? And is that the real route to success? Because it isn't something that everybody adopts and feels. Oh, I, like honestly, if you'd asked me for three, four years ago when it happened, so like we started American barbecue, finished from Street Views, awesome, awesome, racism, 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 <laughs> like, uh, and when we did it, it was quite traumatic because a lot of our customers messages saying we're not going to eat here anymore, and like it was, it was really scary. You were like, cool, okay, cool, this has happened. We've lost a lot of custom. We probably lost our main. You'd go on our insights, and it would be male this age, whatever. Did they, did, did they give you reasons why? They don't like halal. It's filthy. It's barbaric. It's disgusting. Right. So was, I could show like the, the the things, and that's why I wanted to change narratives. I want to see why is it gross. Why is killing your the guy that had killed a fish was um, commenting on Q Points Halal post being like that's so gross? I'm like you're you have hunting pictures all over your Instagram. What like where is it? It's because you have associated Islam terrorist Muslim bad. You have become racist by brainwashing by this, and you just haven't seemed to realize that. And who does? Because you know politically we need. Well, we don't, but the Western countries need countries like Afghanistan, which produces 95% of the world's heroin, countries like Lebanon, countries like Syria. You need this for the old world to continue. That's why we need millennial business to change the old world, to change those old you know, purposes um, and create something that is more, that is long, that has longevity and that this sort of capitalism that we have right now, I don't believe in. I don't think it makes sense. I think that this sort of capitalism is systemically wrong. It does breed for a certain type of business. And if we continue this way, we will have, again, like, like the same tables and same conversations. We'll have the same businesses, the same stuff. And our world, there, will, there won't be much of a world left. So I think everyone should almost adopt. And as soon as we hit that and get some investment, finally, we've been self-financed for so long, we hope to adopt shareholder capitalism so that the people that work for us are part of the company as much as we are. Because that really hurt me being um, in the hospitality industry for so long and giving my life, my soul, my time to so many people and, and making the business and then just being like, here's your living wage. See you later. You're like, no, it's not fair. Do you think that now, given everything that's happened with COVID, all of the conversation after that around anti-racism, is there more of an appetite for inclusive business, for purpose-led business? What What do you think the state of play is now in this new world we're in? Absolutely. I, nobody cared about us until recently as well in a big way. And it's almost like it was quite strange because you go on with this ethos with your company. It's who you are. It's what you do. But it's not as if anyone, you know, and it's, so people are actually stopping and going, oh, wait, we need to make changes. We need to inclusive within our companies. But I do think that, that like for my, my opinion is 
yeah, like the biggest, the world's biggest civil rights movement happened and everyone needs to learn from that, but not on a level, not on a just, hey, okay, cool, we've all put out our little consignments or whatever. Uh, do we not think that that civil rights movement showed us and everyone that there is something wrong inherently? I believe so. I'm a history graduate and it was hard studying something all from the victors to realize that, wow, <laughs> like inherently the nature of what we do is wrong and that's why it's always going to be exclusive and, and and racist in that way because it's it's not made the space was not made for certain people Capit this capitalism wasn't made for certain people the food industry wasn't made for certain people uh, disabled people live their lives in a world that was never intended for them could, could i ask or dig into that because you say um it's not made for them but what you were saying before is it's also not made by them Yes. And I think that's the bigger piece, right? Because you are in a place where you are you are the change. And I'm thinking about our first ever episode of the Speakeasy where we spoke to Asma Khan, who is doing phenomenal things in uplifting women in the in the restaurant trade. And so I guess now is the time and it's not made for people. But what are the things that you're seeing that are changing? Where is the hope? I guess the hope is in the few, the people whose eyes have opened that own the spaces on the table that have almost triggered the other management, the other causes that have also given confidence to other people to go to speak out even further like, I think it's very much like something happened and then, you know, people responded, people responded, but it's holding on to that and going, no, this isn't just a, a moment. This isn't just a this. This is something that we need to literally hold on to dear life and change the way that we live and do everything, the way that we like grow, the way that we hire, the way that we recruit. A friend of mine asked me recently, she said, listen, I had an opportunity to hire more diverse people. However, this person, that this white man was actually better for the position and I had to go for the person that was better. And, and, and then I had to explain to her why that was systemically wrong because of the fact that people don't get the chances. And so it's up to people like her in management and in recruitment to give that chance up, you know? And so having these conversations, something I've never been able to do before, it's so positive. I don't believe it's certain people's place to educate because they have you know, so much going on, but I'm ready with my own times uh, to have these conversations. And, yeah. you know, like I'm like, as an ally, it's my job almost. <laughs> like, so, so Marcel, your, your friend, right? Your friend has um, told you about why they've hired a white person and, and, and you have differing views, but yeah. that's a really difficult one to balance, right? Because what if they are the best person for the job? What if you're saying that, are you saying that meritocracy doesn't actually exist? I'm not, uh, no, I'm saying that a meritocracy, no, well, exactly that, I'm exactly saying that a meritocracy can't exist in a system that wasn't made for everyone. So the meritocracy that exists is for the white man, the white woman, you know what I mean? So if you are going to say, well, it's based on meritocracy, well, then first let's look at the systemic racism, then let's look at the meritocracy. This person here wouldn't have even had a chance or stood a chance. And now someone has bought something in saying we need more diverse people within this so, you know, like I had to do a comparison and say that this person has probably led this sort of life, has had this many interviews, has had this many chances. And so that's why 
they are coming across as better qualified, better chat, better conversation. This person comes from this background, from Dalston, has this. And if you actually put them in comparison as to who's had a better life, the, per- the, the, the black boy actually would do better in comparison because he's had less to work with and gain more. Do you know what I mean? If you still want to do a meritocracy in that sense. So for me, until the playing field is level, it, mm-hmm. you, you can't really base it on that. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I can. I, I think it's a different way to look at things, right? Because it is easy to say, well, it is a meritocracy, but I think questioning the structures is what's needed now. Massively. And I guess so you've, been, you've been running your business now for four years, did you say? Yes. And, and how's that process over the last year? And, and I guess you mentioned that more recently people are really interested in what you're doing and you're doing more press. Like, how are you finding that? How are you finding the reception to what you do? It's been interesting. So obviously we've run for four years. We've had press here and there. We've had a bit of this. We've had that. But recently it's been quite a, quite a lot. And I've had different experiences. I've had fascinating experiences, but some, some that sometimes irk me is, are being introduced as a refugee. You know, like having a conversation about having that as an experience and a background and myself identifying it, but having someone else introduce me that way almost as a commodity. And then one thing that really bothers, well, anyone of an ethnic minority of a background is when people ask you why you speak English so well, or, oh, wow, you do speak English so well. And I find that really ignorant. You've been told that on interviews. Yes, yeah, yeah, I have. (laughs) recently wow. that I've learned that I speak English quite well and I found it quite ignorant because you know you, you'd expect people to understand a little bit more um I passed it off with oh well you know you know being a refugee my accent constantly changes based on who I'm speaking when I'm around northerners it goes this like I don't understand my accent I can be really London I can be really this I don't get it is it not just that you listen to Radio One and therefore you? My life is based on Radio One. Radio One, right? It was just Nick Grimshaw. That's how you ended up the way you are. Um, but it, it, it's interesting, right? Because I guess you're you're you are defying stereotypes of all the stereotype that people have of asylum seekers of people from Afghanistan, and I'm sensing from your voice that you take a, a lot of pride in that. Yeah, <laughs> because you're blazing a trail. So, what what advice would you give to other people who are listening to this, thinking, do you know what? I'm in an industry or in a place where I feel like I don't belong, and what do I do about that? The best piece I advice I can give, and I wish someone had told me earlier, and I'd realised this earlier. And I know everyone says it so often, but it's because it's so valid. Be as authentic as you possibly can, and you you can't you can't end up with being successful because what you do is something that you're truly passionate about I mean, i'll even give you some like so one of the best business philosophies i like are the swedish business philosophers that talk about ethos longevity this that that there are companies like coca-cola that pay so many people to come into their company to find the ethos that they are lacking <laughs> like this is how important what you're actually doing matters and it sounds so simple but it really is and if you can find a small group of very particular people that like what you're doing carry on and carry on and carry on and don't doubt yourself if you believe in what you believe there is a group of people that believes what you believe and has the similar experiences and it will grow and it will grow and it will grow but the more that you are disauthentic and you're not yourself i've been hiding from my identity 
I am ashamed to say that I have even placed a man, my own partner, in the press and in pictures in the first few years. I was hiding as a woman. I was hiding as a refugee. I was hiding as a person. And as soon as I stopped hiding and actually started to say what it is I believed and bring that out into the business, things have changed for me. And it just goes to show that those Swedish philosophers know what they're talking about. (laughs) That's really powerful. And I think there's a lot of fear that happens for people when they have to come out from hiding behind any protected characteristic. So it's a real inspiration for anybody listening who might be doing the same thing. I have to ask if, I guess, thinking about it from, an inclusion perspective, what on your menu would you recommend anybody must absolutely try? The narcos. Absolutely 100% the narcos because they're amazing. Like they've, they're created with the flavors in mind, so many different flavors. And the team here works so hard. And like my mum is involved in this process with the fights that she's had with myself and my partner over the Afghan chutney and his bastardized British version of it. So like, not enough limes, not enough this. She gets so upset. <laughs> but this is, we're British Afghan. We're trying to show people we want both groups. So we want all groups to, to be able to digest what we have in order to digest so much more. And you can start with food and the narcos. You've got Afghans being terrorists. You've got Afghans being heroin addicts. And now you've got Afghans with narcos. And I'm just rather go that route. Hang on, hang on, hang on, Marcel. Can I ask then? Because (laughs) you're saying you're British Afghan. So you're you're having to dial down or dilute something on both sides, right? It's not not Afghan enough. It's not British enough. Do you not feel like there's, there's a bit too much sacrifice happening there? Not at all, because I'm not I, I'm not British enough and I'm not Afghan enough. And I never was. I never when I go like even going to family events like I have a dog, the amount of murder and that causes in my family in London. They're like, oh, my God, now she has a dog. She has dyed her hair orange. What is wrong with this girl? <laughs> you know, like that I I've never been able to be very Afghan and I've never been able to be very British because I've never I've had the diaspora experience. And we never feel like we're in or out. We don't speak either language really well. And when you're there, you're never there. And when you're here, you're never there. The first time I felt like myself is the last few years of Q Point where I've accepted that's who I am. I'm, I'm British Afghan and that's okay. I, I come from a Muslim background and I believe in Islam, but I have done things that are also not, you know, like I have a cigarette then or, you know, like, and, and I need people to understand that that doesn't mean that you're not this and you're not that. It just means that my these experiences shaped this in-between for me, this purgatory. And I know so many other people that feel that they live in that purgatory, but they can't be themselves or they can't fully this. And, you know, a lot of my friends that are Muslim, but also trans, and yet they have to be secretly trans. And they have to secretly have these experiences. And I think that these are the stereotypes that we want to annihilate. And as the diaspora from these communities, it's our job now because there's not a lot lot of us (laughs) to come and put that intellectual growth and art and everything like all the other communities have. Our diaspora is very small and we need to come together and do what we can to say it's okay to be me as well. There isn't one Afghan. Well, Marissa, we're, we're lucky that Ben isn't on this podcast. Um, ben, who sometimes hosts it, is on holiday and has now got a dog. So we'll have to introduce you at some point because ah! we, we talk a lot about uh, who owns dogs. But I'm aware we've taken a fair amount of your, your time here. Um, so, Marissa, people want to find 
you and find out more about QPoint, where should they go? They should go to either the Instagram at QPoint London, LDN, or www.q-point.co.uk, and you can see everything. Amazing. Okay, well, I'm going to follow right now, but Morissal, it's been amazing to listen to you and hear you, and I can't wait. I believe I can order some barbecue right now, right? Even though yes, it's you lockdown. <laughs> right. I think that's my weekend. Sorted. Nationwide shipping, guys. It's been amazing. <laughs> something. It's been <laughs> brilliant. Well, Sarah, thank you for coming on to this week easier. Thank you so much. Thank you. Making diversity everyone's business. So, Simone, what do you think? We covered a lot there, didn't we? Oh, we really did. And I... I was just so struck about how instinctive it was for her to think about everything from a purpose perspective. I came into the conversation really curious about purpose versus profit, and she did not disappoint. I think there are a lot of lessons that we can all take from Marcel. I guess the bit that really stuck with me was around stereotypes and actually people introduce her as a refugee or an Afghan immigrant. It automatically puts something in the listener or the reader's mind to then go, well, this is how I'm going to process that person. But actually the, the lightness of touch that I felt from how she processes her identity was was really inspiring. It, it really was. And there's a lot to be said about the fullness of people's identity and the biases that come up when you pick any one angle about a person, which is why people like Marcella are really changing the narrative just by existing and, and using their platform. And and being able to embrace all of that because you're absolutely right there are there are certain things that people jump to when they when they hear refugee which they absolutely shouldn't do but we can all do something to expand and extend our view of the stereotypes we hold well i guess it's interesting isn't it so because earlier today we were talking about if i introduce you to other people and i said to you well actually if i say a director simone harvey they have no idea who you are, what your race is. So I, I will say, well, Simone is black and therefore has a different experience to what you might be expecting. And how do you feel about that when I, when I say that? I tell you what I love about that. I love that A, that we feel empowered to do that. B, like myself touched on, we're not hiding. And C, that people are actually recognising that there's value in that perspective. It's, it's okay to say black and actually the fact that I am black means I can bring something different to that conversation. And I think we agree that difference is a good thing. It is. So there we go. Another episode of The Speak Easier. If you aren't following us already, it's at underscore unmistakables on Twitter and Instagram. The Speak Easier podcast by The Unmistakables. 